This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's economy is booming, but not all residents benefit. Mayor Michael Hancock hopes to change that. Opportunity is the right of everyone. Progress doesn't have to leave anyone behind. It should bring everyone along. And this, I commit to you. We will take action to make this vision a reality. That is from Hancock's last State of the City address, in which he called for new initiatives around affordable housing and homelessness. Well, he has just unveiled how his administration will address some of those issues. Mayor Hancock joins me from his office in downtown Denver. We're also going to talk about immigration enforcement in the city, questions of public safety at the Central Library, and how the next federal budget could affect Denver's ability to provide services. And Mayor, welcome back to the show. Ryan, thank you. Good to be with you. Denver's Housing Authority says there need to be at least 21,000 additional affordable units to meet demand. And I'll say that last September, the city created its first affordable housing fund. It's expected to bring $150 million over the next decade to fund about 6,000 new affordable units. So a fraction of the need spelled out there. You've said yourself that Denver can't build its way out of this challenge. So what are some specific ways, creative ways besides building that Denver's trying to keep low and middle income people in the city? Well, Ryan, first of all, you know, thanks for talking about this issue. It's a very important issue for us to be addressing and a very timely one. Let me just set the stage. First, we see this as a regional challenge that, uh, the challenges of homelessness to housing or across that spectrum is one that is best addressed across the region. Secondly, um, we uh, in, in 2013, I uh, challenged really the our my administration, the city, and our uh, stakeholder partners around affordable housing to build 3,000 new units in, in within five years. We'll actually meet that goal this year, one year early. Because it did exactly what we expected would expected it would do, and this is the same type of objective, or at least uh, the attitude we're going to bring toward the um, the 150 million dollar uh, effort, the housing fund, and that is it 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 really in, incentivized and it really kind of jump started and energized the market to try to respond to this challenge of affordable housing. Though we would only target 6,000 affordable housing under this fund, we expect that we're going to be able to do much more because of the kind of energy and excitement that is, uh, that's been ignited as a result of our commitment and the fact that we'll leverage those dollars to help leverage other people's uh, investments around affordable housing. Okay, so that it's not just public dollars paying for this. So you think that you can break the 6,000 number, but you have said that it's not just a question of building new housing. And as part of a 30-point plan, actually, that was released just uh, last week, uh, you have some other ideas that could ease the housing crunch that don't involve building. For instance, well, we re- yeah, ev- eviction assistance and uh, foreclosure assistance. Uh, say more about those. Well, I mean, it's very important that we preserve those uh, uh, opportunities for folks to live in affordable housing, as important as building or creating new affordable housing. Uh, the reality is that today we are seeing many people who receive very um, uh, urgent notices from their landlords uh, or major jumps in, in their rent. I mean, I've heard stories, people going from as low as uh, five $600 a month to 1400 to $2,000 a month within a matter of uh, uh, 30 days in terms of their rent increasing are being told to get out. Uh, because they're going to convert the affordable units to more market rate uh, units. We have to have a market that is that demonstrates a little more compassion and a little more 
understanding to the plight of individuals in our city. What we are seeing is that 40% of the people who are coming in and out of our shelters today are people who are working every day. Uh, but yet cannot afford um, basic housing uh, expenses in our city. That's not okay. We're also beginning to see more um, active older adults moving into uh, our shelters, particularly um, uh, senior women who are looking, who are now homeless as a result of things that I just talked about, a dramatic quick increases in rent. So these efforts to help provide eviction assistance, help begin to really advocate for changes in the laws in the state of Colorado, as well as provide mortgage assistance is going to be very critical for us to help get people that sense of security and predictability with regards to their uh, their housing in, in our city. Uh, talk to me about the eviction assistance. So you would provide money from this affordable housing fund to help people meet the difference or what? That's potentially one of the options that we look at. If, if uh, you know, how do we, if there's a major or dramatic jump, how do we provide that type of assistance until we're able to get them into certain programs that are certainly much more flush and, and available to them, uh, whether it's federal dollars or state dollars? Uh, we also must look at state laws that get people more of a notice um, and also require, you know, landlords to play a greater role uh, when they want to, you know, convert without dramatically uh, putting people on the streets. That burden is something that we as a society must share and, and people, you know, if they're trying to adjust to the market, I certainly appreciate that as property owners, uh, but we must address this with some compassion. So I think the reality, Ryan, is that the, the table has to be set with all different types of options for us to play. But the $150 million fund is certainly a tool that we might deploy as a, as a way to support and to provide some uh, assistance to those individuals. You said that Colorado law might need to change as well. Is the subtext of what I hear you saying, Mayor Hancock, that you'd like rent control of some sort? Absolutely not. I didn't say that. Um, I think the reality is that uh, the state controls uh, um, really the kind of landlord um, uh, renter uh, relationship in terms of the laws. And so when I talk about that, you know, what kind of notice do people deserve Mm. um, before you, uh, you know, you put them on the street or dramatically increase their um, you know, I think it's just we need to be able to set that table to say, you know what, these are individuals. And if, if, if you're going to dramatically shift on them, I think there's some rights they should have in terms of uh, the type of notice they receive. Okay. Earlier this week, I spoke with Diana Elliott of the Urban Institute. It's a D.C.-based think tank. They have a new report on workforce housing in Denver. Um, and with that new affordable housing fund, uh, Elliott calls Denver a national leader on this issue but she's still concerned about the housing gap. And uh, one recommendation she had uh, are accessory dwelling units. Now, these are sometimes called mother-in-law additions, or they're they're known as being sort of a separate outbuilding, perhaps on someone's property. This has the potential to be a really important avenue for exploration. But there is a risk also that if you create these units, it could perhaps amplify gentrification. Now, I know, Mayor, that the city in some parts is exploring accessory dwelling units, that is, making housing out of what is not currently housing. Uh, what, what potential do you see there? Well, I think in a broader context, Ryan, um, if we want to think about how zoning lends itself 
to the challenge of access to affordable housing, that's where we start. What laws do we have in the city of Denver that will allow for families to think differently about how they take care of one another and maybe provide opportunity and sources of maybe revenue uh, or additional income for themselves with regards to the property that they own? So in that context, if you look at accessory uh, dwelling units, that is an opportunity um, to provide additional housing for maybe your children who may be just out of college starting their careers for the first time. Uh, Or uh, if you have a great uh, lot of land or a garage that can be converted, our zoning laws can lend themselves to allow you to convert that to a safe dwelling unit so that you can create income, but also provide affordable housing. So I think it's a huge opportunity. It's one of the, I'll tell you, it's one of the things I worked on when I was on city council. I had neighborhoods that actually had zoning um, eligibility for accessory dwelling units. I made sure that we were able to complete that. People turned it into their offices. They turned it into housing for their mothers, parents, um, and so on and so forth. So I think it's a huge opportunity. Are you generally trying to prevent displacement, the idea that Denver loses, I don't know, its teachers and its retail workers uh, to the suburbs of the exurbs? You know what? Listen, I, I, I want to make, say again that I think it's a, a regional approach. You know, I think it's if people choose to live in our surrounding communities, Aurora, Lakewood, Littleton, Boulder, Longmont, uh, North Glen, wherever, to and still work in Denver, I think that's fine. And, and certainly mobility and, and that's the right and, and, and freedom that people should have. However, if a teacher or a police officer wants to live in a city that they serve, um, I had the audacity to believe we should make sure there's ability to accommodate that and in recognizing that those incomes may be limited based on what the market demands we got to find a way to keep those great public servants uh, in our city if they want to live here i think it lends itself to our, our issues of mobility i think it lends itself itself to our issues of health as well as the environment and sustainability so i think it's, it's a combination and quite frankly just a good policy Affordable housing no doubt connects to homelessness, and on that topic, I'd like to talk about the city's libraries, the central location in particular, which has become in some ways a day shelter for the homeless. After the death of a person who was homeless, the library started carrying a drug to treat overdoses, and uh, there are reports of fights and assaults on the rise. You have said elsewhere that you wouldn't take your kids to the library if they were still little today. What should be done? Let me let me just clarify that, Ryan. You know, the, when you deal with television, of course, you just as you can. If we were recording this, you can clip uh, what I say. I was responding very honestly and candidly with uh, the reporter who asked the question: What would you say to family members who are individuals who say I, I would be fearful to take my children to the library? And I'm an honest guy. I don't know any other way to be other than say, you know what? If I was a parent of small children, I would probably be fearful as well. The reality is this. Our library has done a phenomenal job trying to respond to every in the demographic that walks through the door. We have Libraries are a very unique space. They are open and accessible to everyone who wants to be there. Um, and they have noticed, of course, we've had um, some of our homeless come through the doors. And not only did they respond by saying you're welcomed, they also responded by making sure there were services available to them. They've been hiring and requesting from the budget uh, social workers. I have funded those social workers and peer navigators to be there to provide those services. They've helped to try to provide uh, job training, or not job training, but access to jobs through the Internet and computers for the homeless to do searches. 
Uh, I've walked through the library where I've seen individuals who um, were homeless sitting there looking through uh, the comp- uh, looking for jobs on the internet as well as watching television during inclement weather. So the library has done a tremendous job trying to step up and be a service provider to whoever walked through the door. And so what we need to do is to work with the library to make sure that one they have the resources to prove to provide uh, patrols inside the library as well as outside the library and make sure that they that everyone who goes to the doors understand the expectations of their behavior and what will be tolerated and not tolerated. And so we have to draw those lines very clearly that drugs uh, will not be tolerated and certain actions or activity in the, li- in, the uh, in the library and in, our, in their restrooms will not be tolerated. And we're going to help them with that and our police department has already moved in to do just that. I'll say that the library has asked for $50 million for renovations. This is before lots of the reports of, of the drug use and um, uh, violence uh, surfaced. They'd like $50 million for renovations. And part of that would go to making it a safer place, like lowering the height of, of the bookshelves, because there are a lot of places that aren't very visible in the library. This is part of a $900 million bond package that may go before voters this fall. So a piece of a much larger pie. And it's your job to winnow down what projects would benefit. There's a long list. Libraries might benefit parks, roads, uh, upgrades at the zoo, botanic gardens. What do you want to see the money pay for most if, uh, if voters agree that the city should take on that debt? Well, listen, the reality is this city is growing exponentially. We are seeing a thousand new people move to Denver per month. It's been about that uh, pace for about five years now. Uh, and so the reality is that we are a new Denver in terms of our population and uh, the desire of people to call Denver home, as well as the work in the city. The other thing is the city grows by 23% per day, net, in terms of people who come in and do business in our city, who work here. And um, and then, of course, we see them uh, leave during the day, but the reality uh, during the evening. So the reality is, is that this is a very vibrant city. And so um, we've seen the pressures on not only in our housing, but also on our roads and uh, our other infrastructure, our mobility tra- infrastructure in the city. I can bet you that the uh, majority, uh, or at least half of this, these resources will go toward how do we fix our roads, how do we make them more multimodal uh, under the value of moving people and not just cars uh, so that we can get people, we can try to ease some of the congestion in our city and people don't have as uh, great an impact on the quality of life that we've seen. But outside of that, we have a very robust community engagement process that has been going on since November of last year um, where we've asked and we've received thousands of uh, of uh, uh, recommendations over three thousand from regular from citizens of Denver uh, to help us think through what is what our priorities. We know that mobility and transportation infrastructure is leading that uh, that in, engagement, or at least in, in terms of recommendations. And the rest include things like libraries and cultural and art facilities and uh, health and hospitals and our parks. And so we'll do the very difficult task of winnowing, winnowing them down and identifying what would make sense uh, to the people of Denver for us to make investments. Okay, but roads and mobility sound like they're at the top of the list. Uh, Mayor, I want to talk about immigration enforcement in the city under this new administration in Washington. As for ICE enforcement, there's a list of what's known as sensitive locations. So these are places like churches and schools where agents say they try to avoid going into to arrest uh, immigrants in the country illegally. Courthouses are not on that list. And so you asked ICE to consider adding them. Shortly after, though, ICE agents arrested two men at the Denver County Court. Did that feel like a a direct rebuke of your request? 
Yeah, what we've seen, first of all, I think it's important to kind of give an overall foundational thought here. I think the administration, since its day, since day one, has missed numerous opportunities. But on immigration, it's this is, is clearly one of the opportunities they missed. They had an opportunity to lead on this issue and work with the states and cities to say, you know, let's develop a sensible immigration strategy for this nation. Our immigration pro, uh, system in this nation is broken. And as a result, people are living in fear, uh, uncertainty, and it threatens all of us with our sense of safety and our sense of community all over the nation. Uh, as a result of the president's actions, there's a lot of anxi- anxiety um, we, we are finding throughout Denver and around the country. With regards to our sensitive locations, on April 6th, I sent a letter to ICE, our regional office here in Colorado, and said, listen, uh, acknowledge and respect the sensitive locations. We've seen arrests occur in, at schools, um, and, and yes, they, you know, been outside churches and, uh, of course, in our courthouses. And we have seen that well documented here in Denver. And that makes every one of us unsafe. One, we never received a response to that letter. What we saw was a doubling down and the presence and what you saw on the video of them making the arrest at the courthouse. Um, this is unfortunate because it's also directly contradictory to what the the Secretary of Homeland Security has shared with uh, our members of Congress, and I've talked to both of our U.S. senators, and both of them are disappointed, as I am, that uh, ICE has taken a step. So the reality is this. We've got some cowboys uh, in ICE patrolling our streets and are, are, are just absolutely provoking fear and, and throughout our communities all over this nation, and it's not okay. It simply is not okay. And so are you calling them rogue agents within ICE? You're saying I don't think they're road agents, but I'll tell you this, Ryan, what, what leadership has not provided are boundaries and guardrails for ICE. And when you don't do that and you tell them simply, here's what we want, go do it, and um, you can do it by any means necessary, that's what they're doing. And when they don't receive, when they receive a letter from the mayor and all members of city council and members of our judicial branch asking them to honor. Uh, listen, we, we have already, we can document let me, let me, nine, wait, 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 let me finish. We can document today nine witnesses, victims of domestic violence who backed out because of their fear of walking into courthouses. That makes you and me more unsafe, everyone who calls a city home. And I got to ask you, what good does that do when people refuse to, who, who have now don't trust uh, law enforcement and, and our courts and will not do what's necessary to keep themselves safe and now we have uh, perpetrators of these crimes who will not be held accountable. You've suggested that there could be some remote testimony. That is, if there are people who then see the courthouse as a dangerous place for them, uh, but must be a part of the, the judicial process, that perhaps they could testify remotely. But let me push back here. You know, uh, of the the two men arrested recently, one had received final orders of deportation from an immigration judge in 2012, according to ICE. The other had two DUI convictions. Why shouldn't those individuals be made to get off the streets, no matter where they are, courthouse or not? None of these policies, Ryan, are meant to shield violent criminals. Um, We must have a legal reason, and and ICE knows this, to hold individuals. In other words, they must have um, warrants for us to detain someone beyond the time in which they have have, uh, been adjudicated or at least have settled um, the issue with the, the county of, of Denver. Uh, and so, you know, they must issue to us not just a, re, a, a detainer order, but they must actually issue a warrant. And federal courts have upheld that and said to us, we cannot hold them past those times just on detainers. Um, and so we, we have an effective 
communication system with ICE. Um, the reality is, is that they know the rules. They have to give us a warrant. Otherwise, we'll be in violation of federal laws. Not only, let me just go back to your point about virtual uh, testimony yeah. and being able to come before the courts. We are looking at that. Our city attorney's office is looking at that as well as with our courts. And there are some things they've got to work through on that. But we did announce this week, our, our, our earlier this uh, month, I believe, uh, we wrote out the plea by mail which if you're charged with a misdemeanor, um, if you are have a traffic violation, you can actually, primarily traffic violations, you can deal with that through mail very easily. Um, and, and so that, that's going to help keep people from having to come downtown. Not only does that help our undocumented, but it helps any resident of Denver because now you can just save time by doing the plea by mail. And then, of course, the, the, the sentencing reform that city council passed recently yeah. is very important because uh, people who are subject to a year automatically uh, become exposed to potential deportation. This law, these laws change and allow for folks to kind of, well, really allow for the penalties uh, to be uh, uh, proportionate with the crime. Yeah. So let me say just a little bit more about that to ground the listener uh, in what happened. Some sentencing reform on low-level misdemeanors, public urination, panhandling, uh, so that they don't trigger an ICE notification uh, you have made those uh, under a year or under in terms of the the sentences, right. uh, and that's true for immigrants who are in the country legally or illegally, and uh, of course right. for for any other type of citizen. Um, there has been some pushback, though. Uh, so urinating in public or violating curfew is one thing, but this change means that in first and second cases of domestic abuse, if there isn't bodily harm, the sentence might be a year in jail or under, uh, again, so as not to trigger ICE notification. Is that a good idea? You know what? The reality is you won't find anyone who will defend um, and pursue domestic violent offenders more than I will. As you may know the story, I lost my sister to it, so there's not much bend. The reality is this, is the, this has been the practice of the city of Denver, our county, um, for a while. What we've done is codified, and we also change it so that if there is evidence of, of physical injury, it changes and it goes into the bucket where it automatically is to the 365 day uh, uh, potential of uh, sentencing. So okay. it's not much changing with regards to that. That's the way we practice. First offense, we have a certain way of addressing. Second, same. But when we get to the third and or bodily injury, then it's a different story. Well, sanctuary city, I think, you know, has become a rather politicized term. There's no real definition for it. But the general idea is that local authorities detain people here if they're charged with something, not for their immigration status, only if they're charged with something. Uh, Mayor, you've been asked many times whether Denver is a sanctuary city, and you've been both reluctant to embrace the term, but also defiant when it comes to the Trump administration on this issue. Uh, So rather than ask about sanctuary city, I want to ask about a specific policy. The White House has proposed requiring local police to detain suspects for up to 48 hours giving ICE time to look into their immigration status. Uh, if that changes, would you comply? Would, would Denver comply? Listen, we'll work with, with ICE and with the federal law. The reality is that uh, today the federal government has said, you, you know, when someone has settled their, their case with you, uh, you must release them unless there is a warrant. Um, and so I think the key to this is effective communication and uh, being directed by what the federal law uh, allows us to do or requires us to do. All right. So if there were a change in federal law, it's something that you'd abide by. Absolutely. Today is what I mean, this is not about the city of Denver breaking the law. 
Uh, we comply with the law, uh, and, and our communication uh, with that, I mean, with ICE is very important. The other thing that I want to be very clear about is that we're not here to shield or protect uh, violent criminals. Um, this is, you know, what we've seen ICE do recently is move in on people who, you know, may have violated a law that uh, means no harm to any individual, whether it's a traffic violation or, uh, again, you know, something that doesn't, you know, make us any unsafe, any any, any of us unsafe, but just simply we got them um, uh, because they're undocumented. Uh, but we, we when we know that someone who's caused bodily harm or means everyone, I mean, it means that we might be unsafe because of their their freedom in the city, we are willing, we're going to hold them accountable. We will not shield violent criminals. Mayor Hancock, uh, Mayor of Denver, in about the last minute, I'd like to ask about uh, the proposed federal budget as the president sees it. Uh, it obviously has to be dealt with by Congress. But when you look at housing, when you look at community development block grants, when you look at the kind of federal money that comes to the city, what concerns do you have about Denver's own budget in connection to the federal one? Well, Ryan, I mean, you can go back to the early part of our conversation when we're working with housing, working on the issues of housing, and and we're looking at the issues of mobility. Um, You know, both housing and mobility are equalizers. Uh, We're really concerned about the president's budget. The the, 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 uh, draconian cuts in the president's proposed budget are nothing short of senseless, irresponsible, and incomprehensible at a time when we must be finding, we must find ways to reach our most vulnerable people who are being, being, quite frankly, feeling left behind. The president was elected um, by many of these people, quite frankly, who are blue-collar, people who are struggling along the margins, who simply are saying, in all the conversation about this nation and the progress we're making, no one's talking to about us. What about us? And now he is turning his backs on those very people saying, we're going to cut the very programs um, that uh, you are, are, are needing to be to have a sustainable life. For example, uh, he wants to cut the SNAP benefits. These are This is food benefits for uh, families that are struggling. You're talking about children whose parents may be working 40 hours a week, but yet are not able to both keep a roof over their head and provide healthy meals for their children. But and I'll now say you that want to the, cut that. The White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney has said that if you are on food stamps and you are able-bodied, we need you to go to work. If you are on disability insurance and not supposed to be, if you are not truly disabled, we need you to go back to work. Do you have concerns about growing a system that people could take advantage of? Let me say, Ryan, let me be very clear. We are seeing an increase in people who are seeking SNAP benefits. And we are seeing that a large percentage of those individuals are actually working every day. They're able-bodied and they're working. They're just not making the wages necessary that allow them to cover all of their costs. And so one of the things that I think that... uh, the, the administration has done is they put these blinders on and thinking that all the people who are on SNAP benefits or on public assistance are lazy people who don't want to work, who are playing their disabled. And that's not the reality. Maybe if they came out to some of the, if they visited some of the urban cores of this nation uh, and even some of the rural areas, they'll find people who are working hard every day. We'll have to put it, it there. in, but yet are struggling. Mayor Hancock, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You bet, man. Thank you for the time. Michael Hancock is Denver's mayor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (music) 
When Asetu Shango first heard slam poetry in high school, she was instantly obsessed. She couldn't wait to be old enough for her mother to let her go to poetry readings. Now, Shango is poet laureate of Aurora and realizes the huge responsibility that comes with the might of the pen. And so does Ayla Sullivan, who's 19 and is the new youth poet laureate of Denver. And welcome to you both. Hey, thank you Hi, so much. Hi, thank you so much. So each of you wrote something about your respective cities, cities, of course, that border each other. Um, and Ayla, will you read yours? I, th- I understand this comes from a poem in a book that you're working on. Yes, yeah, it does. Um, so this is a, an excerpt from The Longest, Wickedest Street in America. Also, um, what's funny, I just want to say, I just had a birthday, so I'm now 20, and I want to... Oh, look, look at this, we're, all, we're behind the times. <laughs> we are. Happy 20th birthday. <laughs> Thank you. So this is a book that I, draws its inspiration from Colfax, I'm assuming. Yes, yes, yes. yes. This okay. is uh, This is... An excerpt from a very long Colfax poem that I hope other folks will be able to hear live um, whenever I'm doing. And by the way, a, a street that goes both through Denver and Aurora. And bring, yeah. Bringing Ooh, you guys together. Exactly. <laughs> I, that's why I brought it. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I've heard the full poem too. It's amazing. Thank you. Denver, you grandma, grandpas, get you some food. I just fixed you your favorite plate homestead. You belly fat of stars and pavement and violets. You long, weary, tired block of hiding all this colonial pain. Denver. You survive storms with smiles, floods with laughter, and hold your real children, the ones who know the state you were birthed from, should be said like blowing kisses to your mama when you've already said enough goodbyes. Colorado is your mother. All complicated and blood-worn and all, but Denver, you are the city that gives to its people, the home everyone wishes they could have a piece of, so they keep digging deeper. I know your mama well, know all her secret parts, have lived all over her arms, but you are my favorite child of hers, my favorite auntie in this city of the plains. Mm. What does that tell us about this place, do you think? Well, I think um, Denver is Denver is a, is a body that feels like home in so many ways. Uh, it feels like the presence of, of family, of, of both chosen family and blood family. And it's a place where you grow and watch as your family gets taken from you as well. What do you mean by that? Uh, I would say that we're seeing a rapid change of Denver with an influx of gentrification that has always been here, but is rising at an alarming rate. And I think for me, um, as I'm transitioning to adulthood, uh, watching childhood memories and places that I was so inspired to be uh, an artist from lose and turn into craft beer (laughs) lodges and, uh, kombucha shops and uh you know a, a culturally appropriate a culturally appropriative named uh coffee shops uh, in places that have always been historically black um historically for people of color um places that i always knew to be for our people um when you say our people who mm-hmm. do you who do you mean i would for me i, I think you know there's so many gorgeous communities of color that are in Denver. And there are places um, for me and my intersecting identities that I 
have always loved to go to uh, Alameda and Federal for one, for one, where Little Saigon is, has always been home. Um, I know all those places there. Um, Five Points um, was a was a dream of a of a art cultural spot as a as a young artist. And so you're feeling tremendous change and trying to give mm-hmm. to give language to it. I say too, will you share your stanza? And again, I say too, is the new poet laureate in neighboring Aurora? I would really rather not after that, but because <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, mine's is pretty flimsy. Um, I was 19 when I decided I had outgrown my roots, started mm-hmm. snipping at them with hedge trimmers. I moved away that year. For the entire duration of my stay, I wrote a series of poems entitled There Are No Butterflies Here. That is to say, I miss my home and the viceroy butterflies that chase each other outside my window. I just wanted to be home, home near curry and Korean food markets in the heart of both Saudi Arabia and Addis Ababa. This place where all cultures converge, I needed to go home. You went to San Francisco. And, I was in and San you Francisco. wanted to be back in Aurora. Yes. Um, and I think it's sort of interesting because I'm having like the opposite experience as mm-hmm. Ayla um, in terms of Aurora. Like I definitely still have those same feelings towards Denver. Mm-hmm. But in Aurora now, um, so many of the people of color populations are being moved out into Aurora. And so when I came back, it was like even more so culturally diverse. And there were like, you can get literally any food in the world in Aurora. <laughs> And it'd be authentic and delicious and you want to come back. The first time I ever ate goats was in Aurora. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I eat lamb like pretty much every day. Um, yeah. So it's it's really hard to see Denver changing. Um, and there are a lot of spaces in Denver that have closed down that have broken my heart. And at the same time, like outside my window, there's so much beautiful things being created. So it's always that interesting thing with tragedy. Do I hear um, you that saying that in a way... Um, what uh, Ayla sees as Denver's loss is Aurora's gain. A little bit, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so that that's that's the thing about tragedy. There's always like so many facets to it, and like what mm-hmm. is gained in a terrible situation. So Ayla, it sounds like you have some regret, maybe even resentment towards Denver. Do you think that it's hard then to be the city's youth poet laureate? No, um, because I believe that my resentment towards the ever-changing Denver is a resentment towards a historically known colonized Denver. There's always been two Denvers, the Denver of rich, elite, white people taking over known land of people of color, and then the communities of color that have been in Denver for as long as Colorado has been a state. Mm. Um, People forget that the Colorado Constitution is is written in multiple languages, including Mandarin, German, and Spanish. This has always been a, a state of immigrants. And yet you are the uh, poet laureate for those white people. Yes, <laughs> and I, I'm here to remind those white people how, how big the community they are uh, joining is and how we've always been here and reminding them that our narrative is as important as theirs and our history is a history that is included in theirs and should be seen as primary instead of secondary and taught along with Colorado history in schools, not um, something you have to find and research on your own. 
Neither of you uh, are afraid to share your minds, that, that's for sure. And yet I, I picture a lot of the kinds of events where you'll have to be, you know, state of the city addresses and, and these kind of more formal, almost like governmental gatherings. How do you balance the, um, the passion of the role that I have heard come out from both of you with the kind of municipal government civic aspect of the role. And, and yeah, but talk to me about that. Well, to be in a government body is to represent your people. And to represent your people is to be an honest citizen. And if you are an honest citizen with the rights that you should have, that should be protected as a citizen, you should be able to speak as candidly as possible to protect your city and to love your city. And um, so it doesn't sound like you have any plans to hold back well, I, I don't believe that I am in this position to hold back if my position is to inspire literacy and information in history. Two, what would you say? I'm learning from Ava. Um, <laughs> I have struggled tremendously with that balance and feeling like I need um, censor myself because that is not something that we as spoken word artists are taught to do. Like we are taught to be the truth keepers and to see what is what is wrong and what is amiss and to bring light to it. Um, so I do believe that is what a spoken word artist is supposed to do. I think for me, it's become difficult because there are so many people that I love um, who created this role who are up against the same challenges of like, it is possible that we will lose this position in our government, in our local government, if you mess up. So that's on my back when huh. I'm speaking. Um so I'm, yeah, I'm just taking notes from Ayla right now, <laughs> to be honest. What what would cost you the position or, or cost the position in and of itself? What do well, you, the what do you controversy mean? that you're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, I think that That you say people... something that gets the even the position itself eliminated. Right. So there are a lot of people in the Aurora government who were on the fence about this and they were convinced that it was going to be a good thing, but with the stipulation that it can't be controversial because one of the members who created this role was like, that is the point. Like the point of a poet laureate is to be controversial. Um, so, but there are people who can pull the plug on that who are not about that. So it's an interesting role and I'm, you know, I'm only a couple months deep in it, but that has constantly been my thought process. And I think the, the flip side of what you're talking about, like the risk of coming out and being candid and being honest in front of dignitaries and police officers and mayors. And um, there's also the opportunity that we ha- can have our voices heard, especially as marginalized group, people of color, trans people, gender nonconforming people. Like we can be the voices for our community members in spaces that they wouldn't otherwise be invited. Uh, Ayla is gender nonconforming, I'll say. And so you, you yes. bring that perspective to this. And and your predecessor in Aurora was Jovan Mays. Mm-hmm. He was the, the first, right, mm-hmm. poet laureate of Aurora. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, I feel like I could talk to both of you for days, but we've run out of time. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank, thank you Thank you so for much. having us. It's been nice to meet you. So Ayla Sullivan is Denver's new youth poet laureate. And you heard Asetu Shango, who is the new Poet Laureate of Aurora. Memorial Day is the unofficial start of summer. 
And so we have summer reading recommendations for you now, books to read in a sunny spot by the pool or under a shady tree. Kathy Langer is lead buyer with the Tattered Cover Bookstores, and Nicole Magistro owns the bookworm of Edwards outside Vale. They have chosen books by authors from our neck of the woods or that are set in the West. And welcome back to the program, ladies. Thanks, Ryan. It's so great to be back. Thank you. So you have both chosen mysteries. Kathy, can you tell us about yours? My first pick is a literary mystery called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore by Matthew Sullivan. And it's a really wonderful mystery that we are particularly excited about at the Tattered Cover because Matt used to work at the store back in the 90s. And um, it takes place in Denver. Uh, the setting is a a independent bookstore in lower downtown in the 90s that is a very thinly disguised tattered cover. <laughs> tattered cover. So he went from selling books to writing them. But but this is a mystery. So dark things are happening at this bookstore? Dark things are happening. Lydia is the main character. She's a bookseller at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. And she discovers uh, a young man uh, as she's closing the store late one night who's actually committed suicide in the bookstore. And it's someone she's befriended, and it's um, one of the men that she calls book frogs, who are people that hang out at the bookstore and are very literary but may not have traditional lifestyles. So it really starts out with a very dark opening, and it it stays pretty dark. You learn about her difficult history, um, this young man's history, and it all blends together with a really incredible ending, and it's actually some of it's based on a true occurrence in Denver back in the 70s. Okay. So it's it's gripping. Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore by Matthew Sullivan. And uh, I guess you have two mysteries for us, Nicole. I do. Two thrillers by Colorado authors. The first is What You Don't Know by Joanne Cheney. Um, Joanne is from Colorado Springs, and this is her debut. It's a fast-paced thriller about a copycat serial killer running amok in Denver. Okay. (laughs) Um, So there's the damaged detective, Hoskins, and then there's the reporter that reported on the original crimes who's still in the picture. And then, of course, there's the serial killer's wife, Gail, and she has an important part to play in the book, too. Um, It's very suspenseful, fast-paced, and, of course, you're going to recognize many places in this book. Okay, and I suppose it's not just a whodunit. It's like a whodunit again because it's a serial killer. Bodies are in the basement. Um, Dark Matter is the second book by Blake Crouch, a Colorado author who has hit the bestseller list. He's This is brand new in paperback. And the thriller here has tones of science fiction, a little romance, and also a lot of self-reflection. Um, the main character is a physics professor who wakes up in a different world where in this new world, he's a well-known genius, but which sounds great, but nobody that he knew from his previous life is there. Um, and he needs them. So he's got to figure out this new world. And is it a dream or is it really a new reality? Um, so you really are propelled to the ending. And it's a great ending to this book. Um, super easy to read. Out in the Sun. Out in the Sun. Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, a Colorado writer. And What You Don't Know by Joanne Cheney. Kathy, from The Tattered, you have another uh, novel that you say is a great read. Tell us about Among the Lesser Gods. Among the Lesser Gods is by 
Margot Katz, and it takes place in Leadville. A young woman is leaving um, her home in L.A. She's graduated from college and kind of at loose ends. She she has a dark past, and this novel is also based on some real events. But she's she's heading to Leadville, where her grandmother lives, and she kind of wants to hide away. She's got a couple of secrets that she's she knows are going to come out, but she doesn't want them to. And she's she uh, finds herself in Leadville in this small town. But again, there's a mystery that goes way back to a missing aunt, and and uh, it's very evocative of small-town Leadville and the beauty of the mountains. So you have suspense, you have kind of Ann Tyler-esque in mm. Leadville, and uh, it's very compelling. She's a wonderful, wonderful writer, and it's also a debut. Among the Lesser Gods, the debut from Margot Katz. And indeed, uh, Leadville is such a a unique place, and how fun to be able to read something that's set there. Nicole, you brought a book today about a subject near and dear to the heart of Westerners, and that's water. Uh, tell us why you chose Where the Water Goes by David Owen. Well, you're right. We all know that water is a huge issue. Um, there's the legal details, there's the historical relationships, tons of waste. Um, but No one really has written such a readable adventure of literally where the water goes, or in this case, where it doesn't. Um, David Owen has some Colorado connections, but uh, lives in Connecticut, and he takes um, much time and research to begin at the headwaters and go all the way to the million-acre desert in Mexico where the Colorado uh, ends. And Owen has written for The New Yorker. Uh, We interviewed him on this program about the book, Where the Water Goes. And I have to say, it was one of the most eye-opening in terms of just how our water is used across the West and then the little of it that gets to Mexico. Kathy, you have a book about uh, another favorite subject for Westerners, climbing, uh, and in this case about an elite climber, Tommy Caldwell. Tell us about this. Tommy Caldwell grew up in Colorado. He is indeed an elite climber, world-known And I have to admit, I hadn't heard of him until late 2014, early 2015, when he and his climbing partner were about to finish an ascent up the sheer vertical wall of El Capitan called the Dawn Wall in a a free climbing ascent. And I remember listening on the radio the last couple of days because he's a Colorado native and everyone was thrilled. But this was the hardest climb that was ever attempted and finished. And um, he's writing a memoir about the climb, how he got to be such an elite climber. But also he's had some very difficult things happen in his life. He was climbing in Kyrgyzstan with a group and they were uh, kidnapped by militants and that ended well for them, but not for the militants. And then he lost a finger actually in a home repair accident, which is just awful to think about. Yeah. And, and and he thought he'd lose his climbing career, he told us when he was on the program. It's also funny to think that this guy who is now probably the best climber in the world talks about how scrawny he was as a kid. Yes, and, yes. You know, so it's called Push, A Climber's Journey of Endurance, Risk, and Going Beyond Limits by Tommy Caldwell. Kathy, another book about the outdoors My Heart Belongs to Nature. Uh, I understand that there are a lot of photographs in this one. This is a beautiful book by uh, uh, (laughs) 
I just forgot the. Well, that's okay, name. John Nichols. John Nichols. I, I'm so I have sorry. It. Don't yeah. worry about it. John Nichols, and he uh, he's been taking photographs over the last 45 years, and uh, we know him from the Milagro Beanfield War and the Sterile Cuckoo. He's and this is essays and incredible photographs, mostly in his his uh, Taos neighborhood. He's got landscapes and and skyscapes and little birds, and it's just beautiful. And his writing is brilliant. Ah, John Nichols, My Heart Belongs to Nature, a memoir in photographs and prose. Nicole, we've just run out of time, but you have chosen a kid's book. We'll put this at the website as well. It's called Running with Courage by Joan M. Wolfe, if you'd like to get kids reading something with a Western flavor. So we heard from Kathy Langer of The Tattered Cover, Nicole Magistra of The Bookworm of Edwards. This is Colorado Matters.